Section 53 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 53. Selected Excerpts by Augustine Birrell. Part 2. Truth Hunting. Is truth hunting one of those active mental habits which, as Bishop Butler tells us, intensify their effects by constant use? And are weak convictions, paralyzed intellects, and laxity of opinions amongst the effects of truth hunting? on the majority of minds these are not unimportant questions let us consider briefly the probable effects of speculative habits on conduct the discussion of a question of conduct has the great charm of justifying if indeed not requiring personal illustration and this particular question is well illustrated by instituting a comparison between the life and character of charles lamb and those of some of his distinguished friends personal illustration especially when it proceeds by way of comparison is always dangerous and the dangers are doubled when the subjects illustrated and compared are favorite authors it behooves us to proceed warily in this matter a dispute as to the respective merits of gray and collins has been known to result in a visit to an attorney and the revocation of a will an avowed inability to see anything in miss austen's novels is reported to have proved destructive of an otherwise good chance of an indian judgeship i believe however i run no great risk in asserting that of all english authors charles lamb is the one loved most warmly and emotionally by his admirers amongst whom i reckon only those who are as familiar with the four volumes of his life and letters as with Ilia. but how does he illustrate the particular question now engaging our attention speaking of his sister mary who as every one knows throughout Ilia is called his cousin bridget he says it has been the lot of my cousin oftener perhaps than i could have wished to have had for her associates and mine free thinkers leaders and disciples of novel philosophies and systems but she neither wrangles with nor accepts their opinions nor did her brother he lived his life cracking his little jokes and reading his great folios neither wrangling with nor accepting the opinions of the friends he loved to see around him to a contemporary stranger it might well have appeared as if his life were a frivolous and useless one as compared with those of these philosophers and thinkers they discussed their great schemes and affected to prove deep mysteries and were constantly asking what is truth he sipped his glass shuffled his cards and was content with the humbler inquiry what are trumps but to us looking back upon that little group 
and knowing what we now do about each member of it, no such mistake is possible. To us it is plain beyond all question that judged by whatever standard of excellence it is possible for any reasonable human being to take, Lamb stands head and shoulders a better man than any of them. No need to stop to compare him with Godwin or Hazlitt or Lloyd. Let us boldly put him in the scales with one whose fame is in all the churches with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, logician, metaphysician, bard. There are some men whom to abuse is pleasant. Coleridge is not one of them. How gladly would we love the author of Christabel, if we could! But the thing is flatly impossible. His was an unlovely character. The sentence passed upon him by Mr. Matthew Arnold, parenthetically in one of the Essays in Criticism, Coleridge had no morals, is no less just than pitiless. As we gather information about him from numerous quarters, we find it impossible to resist the conclusion that he was a man neglectful of restraint, irresponsive to the claims of those who had every claim upon him, willing to receive, slow to give. In early manhood Coleridge planned a pantisocracy, where all the virtues were to thrive. Lamb did something far more difficult. He played cribbage every night with his imbecile father, whose constant stream of querulous talk and fault-finding might well have goaded a far stronger man into practicing and justifying neglect. That Lamb, with all his admiration for Coleridge, was well aware of dangerous tendencies in his character, is made apparent by many letters, notably by one written in 1796, in which he says, Oh, my friend, cultivate the filial feelings, and let no man think himself released from the kind charities of relationship. These shall give him peace at the last. These are the best foundation for every species of benevolence. I rejoice to hear that you are reconciled with all your relations. This surely is as valuable an aid to reflection as any supplied by the Highgate seer. Lamb gave but little thought to the wonderful difference between the reason and the understanding. He preferred old plays, an odd diet, some may think, on which to feed the virtues, but however that may be, the noble fact remains that he, poor frail boy, for he was no more when trouble first assailed him, stooped down and without sigh or sign took upon his own shoulders the whole burden of a lifelong sorrow. Coleridge married. Lamb, at the bidding of duty, remained single, wedding himself to the sad fortunes of his father and sister. Shall we pity him? No. He had his reward, the surpassing reward that is only within the power of literature to bestow. It was Lamb, and not Coleridge, who wrote Dream Children, a reverie. Then I told how for seven long years, in hope sometimes, sometimes in despair, yet persisting ever, I courted the fair Alice W. 
and as much as children could understand i explained to them what coyness and difficulty and denial meant in maidens when suddenly turning to alice the soul of the first alice looked out at her eyes with such a reality of representment that i became in doubt which of them stood before me or whose that bright hair was and while i stood gazing both the children gradually grew fainter to my view receding and still receding till nothing at last but two mournful features were seen in the uttermost distance which without speech strangely impressed upon me the effects of speech we are not of alice nor of thee nor are we children at all the children of alice call bartram father we are nothing less than nothing and dreams we are only what might have been godwin hazlitt coleridge where now are their novel philosophies and systems bottled moonshine which does not improve by keeping only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in the dust were we disposed to admit that lamb would in all probability have been as good a man as every one agrees he was as kind to his father as full of self-sacrifice for the sake of his sister as loving and ready a friend even though he had paid more heed to current speculations it is yet not without use in a time like this when so much stress is laid upon anxious inquiry into the mysteries of soul and body to point out how this man attained to a moral excellence denied to his speculative contemporaries performed duties from which they good men as they were would one and all have shrunk how in short he contrived to achieve what no one of his friends not even the immaculate wordsworth or the precise southey achieved the living of a life the records of which are inspiriting to read and are indeed the presence of a good diffused and managed to do it all without either wrangling with or accepting the opinions that hurtled in the air about him benvenuto cellini from obiter dicta what a liar was benvenuto cellini who can believe a word he says to hang a dog on his oath would be a judicial murder yet when we lay down his memoirs and let our thoughts travel back to those far-off days he tells us of there we see him standing in bold relief against the black sky of the past the very man he was not more surely did he with that rare skill of his stamp the image of clement the seventh on the papal currency than he did the impress of his own singular personality upon every word he spoke and every sentence he wrote we ought of course to hate him but do we a murderer he has written himself down a liar he stands self-convicted of being were any one in the netherworld bold enough to call him thief 
it may be doubted whether Radamanthus would award him the damages for which we may be certain he would loudly clamour. Why do we not hate him? Listen to him. Upon my uttering these words there was a general outcry, the noblemen affirming that I promised too much. But one of them, who was a great philosopher, said in my favour, from the admirable symmetry of shape and happy physiognomy of this young man i venture to engage that he will perform all he promises and more the pope replied i am of the same opinion then calling trajano his gentleman of the bedchamber he ordered him to fetch me five hundred ducats and so it always ended suspicions aroused most reasonably, allayed most unreasonably, and then ducats. He deserved hanging, but he died in his bed. He wrote his own memoirs after a fashion that ought to have brought posthumous justice upon him, and made them a literary gibbet, on which he should swing a creaking horror for all time. But nothing of the sort has happened the rascal is so symmetrical and his physiognomy as it gleams upon us through the centuries so happy that we cannot withhold our ducats though we may accompany the gift with a shower of abuse this only proves the profundity of an observation made by mr badgett a man who carried away into the next world more originality of thought that is now to be found in the three estates of the realm. Whilst remarking upon the extraordinary reputation of the late Francis Horner, and the trifling cost he was put to in supporting it, Mr. Badgett said that it proved the advantage of keeping an atmosphere. The common air of heaven sharpens men's judgments. Poor Horner, but for that kept atmosphere of his always surrounding him would have been bluntly asked what he had done since he was breached and in reply he could only have muttered something about the currency as for our special rogue cellini the question would probably have assumed this shape rascal name the crime you have not committed and account for the omission but these awkward questions are not put to the lucky people who keep their own atmospheres. The critics, before they can get at them, have to step out of the everyday air, where only achievements count, and the decalogue still goes for something, into the kept atmosphere, which they have no sooner breathed than they begin to see things differently, and to measure the object thus surrounded with a tape of its own manufacture horner poor ugly a man neither of words nor deeds becomes one of our great men a nation mourns his loss and erects his statue in the abbey mr badgett gives several instances of the same kind but he does not mention cellini who is however in his own way an admirable example you open his book a pharisee of the pharisees lying indeed why you hate prevarication as for murder your friends know you too well to mention the subject in your hearing except in immediate connection with capital punishment 
you are of course willing to make some allowance for cellini's time and place the first half of the sixteenth century and italy yes you remark cellini shall have strict justice at my hands so you say as you settle yourself in your chair and begin to read we seem to hear the rascal laughing in his grave his spirit breathes upon you from his book peeps at you roguishly as you turn the pages his atmosphere surrounds you you smile when you ought to frown chuckle when you should groan and oh final triumph laugh aloud when if you had a rag of principle left you would fling the book into the fire your poor moral sense turns away with a sigh and patiently awaits the conclusion of the second volume how cautiously does he begin how gently does he win your ear by his seductive piety i quote from mr roscoe's translation it is a duty incumbent on upright and credible men of all ranks who have performed anything noble or praiseworthy to record in their own writing the events of their lives yet they should not commence this honourable task before they have passed their fortieth year such at least is my opinion now that i have completed my fifty-eighth year and am settled in florence where considering the numerous ills that constantly attend human life i perceive that i have never before been so free from vexations and calamities or possessed of so great a share of content and health as at this period looking back on some delightful and happy events in my life and on many misfortunes so truly overwhelming that the appalling retrospect makes me wonder how i have reached this age in vigour and prosperity through god's goodness i have resolved to publish an account of my life and i must in commencing my narrative satisfy the public on some few points to which its curiosity is usually directed the first of which is to ascertain whether a man is descended from a virtuous and ancient family i shall therefore now proceed to inform the reader how it pleased god that i should come into the world so you read on page roman numeral one what you read on page one hundred ninety one is this just after sunset about eight o'clock as this musketeer stood at his door with his sword in his hand when he had done supper i with great address came close up to him with a long dagger and gave him a violent backhanded stroke which i aimed at his neck he instantly turned round and the blow falling directly upon his left shoulder broke the whole bone of it upon which he dropped his sword quite overcome by the pain and took to his heels i pursued and in four steps came up with him when raising the dagger over his head which he lowered down i hit him exactly upon the nape of the neck the weapon penetrated so deep that though i made a great effort to recover it again i found it impossible so much for murder now for manslaughter or rather cellini's notion of manslaughter pompeo entered an apothecary shop at the corner of the chiavica about some business and stayed there for some time 
i was told he had boasted of having bullied me but it turned out a fatal adventure to him just as i arrived at that quarter he was coming out of the shop and his bravos having made an opening formed a circle round him i thereupon clapped my hand to a sharp dagger and having forced my way through the file of ruffians laid hold of him by the throat so quickly and with such presence of mind that there was not one of his friends could defend him i pulled him towards me to give him a blow in front but he turned his face about through excess of terror so that i wounded him exactly under the ear and upon repeating my blow he fell down dead it had never been my intention to kill him but blows are not always under command we must all feel that it would never have done to have begun with these passages but long before the one hundred ninety-first page has been reached cellini has retreated into his own atmosphere and the scales of justice have been hopelessly tampered with that such a man as this encounters suffering in the course of his life should be matter for satisfaction to every well-regulated mind but somehow or other you find yourself pitying the fellow as he narrates the hardships he endured in the castle of st angelo he is so symmetrical a rascal just hear him listen to what he says well on in the second volume after the little incidents already quoted having at length recovered my strength and vigour after i had composed myself and resumed my cheerfulness of mind i continued to read my bible and so accustomed my eyes to that darkness that though i was at first able to read only an hour and a half i could at length read three hours i then reflected on the wonderful power of the almighty upon the hearts of simple men who had carried their enthusiasm so far as to believe firmly that god would indulge them in all they wished for and i promised myself the assistance of the most high as well through his mercy as on account of my innocence thus turning constantly to the supreme being sometimes in prayer sometimes in silent meditation on the divine goodness i was totally engrossed by these heavenly reflections and came to take such delight in pious meditations that i no longer thought of past misfortunes on the contrary i was all day long singing psalms and many other compositions of mine in which i celebrated and praised the deity thus torn from their context these passages may seem to supply the best possible falsification of the previous statement that cellini told the truth about himself judged by these passages alone he may appear a hypocrite of an unusually odious description but it is only necessary to read his book to dispel that notion he tells lies about other people he repeats long conversations sounding his own praises during which as his own narrative shows he was not present he exaggerates his own exploits his sufferings even it may be his crimes but when we lay down his book we feel we are saying good-bye 
to a man whom we know he has introduced himself to us and though doubtless we prefer saints to sinners we may be forgiven for liking the company of a live rogue better than that of the lay figures and empty clock-cases labelled with distinguished names who are to be found doing duty for men in the works of our standard historians what would we not give to know julius caesar one half as well as we know this outrageous rascal the saints of the earth too how shadowy they are which of them do we really know excepting one or two ancient and modern quietists there is hardly one amongst the whole number who being dead yet speaketh their memoirs far too often only reveal to us a hazy something certainly not recognizable as a man this is generally the fault of their editors who though men themselves confine their editorial duties to going up and down the diaries and papers of the departed saint and obliterating all human touches this they do for the better prevention of scandals and one cannot deny that they attain their end though they pay dearly for it i shall never forget the start i gave when on reading some old book about india i came across an after-dinner jest of henry martin's the thought of henry martin laughing over the walnuts and the wine was almost as robert browning's unknown painter says too wildly dear and to this day i cannot help thinking that there must be a mistake somewhere to return to cellini and to conclude on laying down his memoirs let us be careful to recall our banished moral sense and make peace with her by passing a final judgment on this desperate sinner which perhaps after all we cannot do better than by employing language of his own concerning a monk a fellow-prisoner of his who never so far as appears murdered anybody but of whom cellini none the less felt himself entitled to say i admired his shining qualities but his odious vices i freely censured and held in abhorrence end of section fifty three Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.